And welcome to the Stick to Live Hockey Podcast. Stick to Hockey Live Podcast. It's Jason Martinez, presented by Park Sportsbook. Make sure you download the Park Sportsbook app on your iPhone or your Android and check out all the great features in game betting. We'll have some plays later in this episode. I might give out a first to score and a goal score again since I nailed Cam Atkinson the other day. I didn't think he was going to score three times, but I did have him scoring. So triple your pleasure. And we'll see what uh, the players are tonight. Some plays we'll give out later in the episode. And new customers, if you sign up now, you're going to get that $500 risk-free bet. So make sure you sign up. It's easy to use. I can put plays in while I'm sitting here doing the show. That's how easy it is. And make sure you follow Park Sportsbook uh, on Twitter, at Park Sportsbook. Follow them on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and uh, get uh, great content, daily specials, all kinds of stuff on there as well and and check out the live in-game betting and play-by-play betting as well so great stuff on parks and we've got a fun episode today because it's actually a fun time to be a hockey fan in philadelphia again after winning three straight straight after losing well going winless in 10 straight and losing the last six in regulation and we're going to talk about a lot of the different elements of why the team has won the last three games is it sustainable what do they need to get better at? And a ton more with our guest on this episode. And I'm happy to bring him in right now from the athletic and broad street hockey BSH, BSH radio. It is Charlie O'Connor. He is our guest of honor on this episode of stick to hockey live. Charlie, what's going on? Hey, how's it going, Jason? Thanks for having me. Oh man. I'm excited to talk to you because there's so many elements of this team that are interesting again, right now. And we're going to talk about, you know, Vancouver as kind of, another part of this, but we'll get to that. But let's start here because um, Morgan Frost went into COVID protocol in the last game. And I know you've been doing some reporting on this. He obviously was pulled from the game after, I believe, two ships shifts and about a minute and 15 of ice time. Uh, the team did go to Montreal, but there's a, I got to look at this and go, there's a little risk here because if a player tests positive there, they may get trapped over the border for a period of time. Yeah, it's a real concern. Um, it, it's tough because, you know, it's not like the Flyers can just not go. You know, this is on their schedule and, you know, they can't do a voluntary shutdown just because of one player. So all you can really do as the Flyers is kind of just cross your fingers and hope that, you know, this, uh, you know, can't really call it an outbreak because it appears to, to just be Morgan Frost at the moment. But Morgan Frost was around his teammates, you know, at practice in the locker room before the game on the bench for those few minutes before he was pulled. So you have to worry that, you know, even though all these players are vaccinated and, and I did report that uh, my understanding is over 50% of the players on the team have the booster as well. So there is, there is protection there. It's certainly possible that someone could be exposed to, you know, a positive COVID-19 person and not actually, you know, contract the virus. So, you know, Flyers are certainly hoping that's the case. Uh, you just don't know. And you just kind of have to wait and see. So, you know, they're over in Montreal now. They they made the trip. Um, my understanding is that, you know, and I'm not quite quite sure where the uh, the COVID protocols on the NHL level stand. Because they were talking yesterday about turning it into, you know, turning to a daily testing model. What they had been doing all year is testing every three days, every 72 hours. I believe they're moving to a daily testing model. I'm just not sure if that's officially happened yet. I don't know if the NHL and NHLPA have, have kind of, you know, crossed all the T's, dotted all the I's with the, the new protocols they're 
they're applying. Uh, but I know that at least a few of the players are going to be taking, um, you know, a PCR test or already took a PCR test this morning. Um, probably players that were, you know, in relatively close contact with Morgan Frost um, because the next regularly scheduled test is actually supposed to be in Philly, you know, back or, or in Voorhees uh, on Friday when they get back from the trip. So is it possible that at, you know, 6 p.m., 7 p.m. tonight that another player that they tested will come up positive and they'll have to be pulled from the game? Yeah, it's possible. And that's the concern. So I think everyone in Flyers world is just kind of, you know, holding their breath, crossing their fingers and hoping that this is just, you know, a one off and, and they'll get through it. But uh, no one really knows until we see what happens over the next few days. Uh, oddly not. Let's let's just be really honest here the chance of it being a one-off doesn't seem good yeah like you see what's going on in calgary they added seven more between players and staffers today and and this omicron variant is present in the nhl because i know free just reported that that some of the teams are dealing with this and it's obviously more transmissible uh but I mean, the likelihood that this is just one player to me seems incredibly low considering what we're seeing, not just in the NHL, but all in all of sports. Yeah, I'd have to agree. Um, you know, there have been some some instances in the NHL where, you know, the a, a couple guys get it this season and then it doesn't spread further. But as you said, the you know, the new variant definitely, you know, plays a role. No idea if if that's what uh you know, if that's what Morgan Frost you know, was tested positive for really the flyers haven't even announced if he's officially tested positive, but I believe that's more about, you know, privacy regulations than anything else. Yeah. You can, you can assume based on, you know, the circumstantial evidence that he probably tested positive. Um, so we'll see what happens. You know, the, the flyers obviously dealt with such bad luck last year with their COVID outbreak. You would hope that, you know, maybe they, they get a little bit lucky this time. This is obviously the first, you know, real incident they've had this year. I know Patrick Brown was out for a while, but he actually, you know, he actually contracted that when he was in Vegas. So that wasn't yeah. even a Flyers thing. That was more just like they they claimed a player and he happened to show up and test positive. Yeah. Um, this is the first time where it's really hitting the team. And, you know, it would be a real bummer if it, not just because obviously you don't want to see any of the players get sick, but because, as you noted, you know, after a really, really rough go, it looks like the Flyers are making some, you know, legitimate progress in terms of the quality of their play, you know, how much progress remains to be seen, but it would be a real bummer if we can't see, you know, kind of the, the end of that, you know, whether this is actual progress, whether this is more of a smokescreen driven by, you know, relatively weak opponents, or if they're actually starting to click under, you know, interim head coach Mike Yo, And if a bunch of guys get COVID, then, you don't even really know because then you're dealing with what yeah. like Carolina's dealing with right now, where they don't even really have most of their team playing. Yeah. And that's the thing. Like this team needs not only uh, to play well, get points in the standings, but they need to get their game in order. And you'd hate to see them postponed right now because for what you said, obviously, like you don't want to see players get sick and it's spread and all of that and to, to staffers and, and the like, but you know, when you have New Jersey, Montreal and Ottawa on your schedule, you want to play those games for a team that, I think there's still probably a little bit of fragility there uh, to, you know, to get that repetition and get their game in order. This is one of those spots in the schedule. Like I like in this spot, like as the polar opposite to a stretch they had in the middle of the 10 game winless streak where they saw Tampa, Florida, Carolina in three successive games. Then you have these games, New Jersey, Montreal, and Ottawa, and their combined record was 24, 47 and nine heading into this week. 80 games total for a whopping 57 standings points. Like this is an opportunity for them to get points and accomplish the other thing and get in their game in order, isn't it? 
Oh, to be sure. And and I think, you know, that was a point I made in my column after the Devils game is that, you know, I'm not quite sure, you know, how fixed the Flyers are. I, I don't think we're going to know that yeah. really, assuming right. that the, you know, that that the COVID, you know, scare doesn't go further than Morgan Frost. I don't think we're going to really know that until next week when they play Washington and Pittsburgh. That's when we'll get a better understanding of just how far they've come. But they've clearly made progress just because last week they played the Devils and the Devils made them look like they were barely an NHL team. And then this week they play against the same team and they just torched them. You know, it wasn't a competitive game. So clearly there's progress being made. And it's always nice when there's, you know, an easy comparison to be made because you play the same team twice in a week, because clearly the team, the Flyers team that showed up in Newark last Wednesday was not ready to play a hockey game. You know, it was, it was a busy week. Their offense was non-existent. They couldn't complete even like a simple pass. And then against the Devils this week, they look like an entirely different team. So they're clearly improving. It's just a matter of how much are they improving and have they merely put themselves in the position where, okay, they're better than the bad teams, but that doesn't mean they're actually a good team. So this week would have been big to continue to prove that they're better than the not good teams like the Devils who have been struggling mightily, the the Canadians who've been a disaster all year, and Ottawa who's had a couple impressive wins over the last week or so, but talent-wise, they're not there. I mean, they're not a contender and you roll through these teams and then you put yourself in a position where you go against Washington and Pittsburgh. And if you make some noise against them, people have to start, you know, stand up and take notice and say that these guys, you know, maybe they're not the team that uh, that was buried in the standings because of a 10 game losing streak. Maybe they're different. Charlie, one of the things that's hard to wrap our heads around is that we're about, you know, 25% through the season, a little bit more than that at this point. But it's amazing. They've had a 10 game winless streak. That was the first time they lost back to back games this year. Yet they've beaten Boston this year. They've beaten Calgary. They got beaten by Calgary, too. They beat Washington on the road. They beat Edmonton. They beat Carolina. Like this, it it almost doesn't make sense that they've beaten so many good teams but still had a 10-game winless streak. And I know the schedule was relentless in that 10 games um, with opponents and just other than the New Jersey Devils, everybody was a good team. But how do you kind of wrap your head around the fact that they do have a lot of quality wins on the schedule, but they're still a team that's way behind in the standings now. Yeah, I think in that 10-game winless streak, I think things just spiraled. You know, you get caught in that, and I think there was also an element of, you know, there had been tension with regards to the players and the coaching staff dating Clearly. back to last year, and that's kind of when it all came to a head. Like, I don't think they were, you know, there was fights or anything. I just think that it got to the point where the players were tuning out the head coach and the message that he was trying to get across. And that happens in the NHL. You know, there's a reason why coaching turnover happens so often in this league. You know, coaches don't last long. Their messages grow stale. And I think what happened in that 10 game winless streak was a combination of a relentless schedule and the players kind of losing faith in the coaching staff. So it was kind of a perfect storm, you know, where maybe if you're, if you're playing, a good team, a bad team, a good team, a bad team, you're going to struggle, but you're probably going to be able to squeeze some wins out of it. I mean, they could have won that Devils game in the middle of that that 10-game winless streak, even though you know they didn't play that well. The Devils are a weak enough team that they could have won and had a couple bounces went their way. They just happened to be falling apart structurally at the same time as they were playing against good teams every night, and the result was a 10-game winless streak. So that's kind of where I would put it. Like I do think the Flyers have talent. Now, whether they're talented enough to be a true contender, I'm not sure. And obviously injuries have hurt them a lot this year. There have been guys like Ryan Ellis who have barely played Kevin Hayes, who, you know, missed a lot of time is back, but clearly isn't a hundred, isn't at a hundred percent. So they're not really playing at full strength and that's probably part of it. 
But I, I do think they have the foundation to be at least a solid team. And that's probably why they were able to win the games that they did against the quality teams that they did. But there were clearly major structural issues that, that came to a head during that 10-game winless streak. And now it's just a matter of how quickly they can fix them. Yeah, I looked at it as a confluence of several things. It was their game and lack of confidence in it, uh, the injuries, the schedule, it, and the league's too unforgiving. When, when you have all those things against you, you're not going to win. I mean, you shouldn't have lost 10 games in a row. Jersey lost 8 of 10, but the only team they beat were the Flyers. Yeah. <laughs> to a game, you're going, what, are you kidding me? Like, that team's a, a mess, and they found a way to beat the Flyers twice. It just shows you how bad it is. Let me ask you this question, because I get asked it a lot, and people say, you know, why do NHL teams turn over coaches so quickly? It's about every three years that yeah. you turn it over. I have some theories on it based on youth hockey, because every two years as you level up from squirt to peewee, to Bantam, to Midget, you get a new voice, basically. That's an interesting theory. It's it's just a theory I have. I don't know that there's any fact behind it or not. But, um, you know, you look at it, and somebody asked me, I was was on TSN 1290 in in Edmonton. The guy asked me, why why do they keep firing coaches? And I said, well, because it works. (laughs) (laughs) It works in the NHL. There's so many examples you can point to. And look at Vancouver now, right? And you look at, go back to La Violette, and there's so many instances throughout not just in Philadelphia, but around the NHL, it works changing the voice and changing. It's not just changing the messenger. It's also changing the message. And what's kind of your theory on why, why this seems to be such a good model for success. Go back to Bilesma and Sullivan. I mean, all over the league, you see it. Yeah. It's a fascinating question. I've never thought about that theory about, you know, the fact that players change coaches so often coming up through the ranks that maybe they're just used to the idea of having a new message every couple of years. That's, that's intriguing. And there, there really might be something to that. You know, for me, it's, it's a combination of a few things. You know, number one, I do think part of it probably is just truthfully how good coaches are around the league in the sense that, you know, a new guy comes in, he implements his system. It works for a while. Then other teams figure out how to attack that system that that coach runs with that team. Then it stops working as well. And then over time, the players might lose faith because what they were doing before that was working isn't working as well. And then you have to make a coaching change and you have to do something different. And then it takes the rest of the league another two to three years to adapt to what that team is newly doing. Um, so I think that might be part of it. Part of it too might just honestly come down to, and I don't think it's an intentional thing on the part of the players, but because it's so accepted these days that coaches get changed every three to four years, that when when things start to go bad, that players start to expect it too. Yeah. And once once as a player, you're expecting that shoe to drop, it's over. Like yeah. it's going to be nearly impossible for a coach to regain the room once he's lost it. And I think, you know, if we lived in an era where it was just expected that, well, coaches don't get fired, you know, coaches have a, ch- a 10 year shelf life. There wouldn't be any other choice for players, but to just kind of grit and bear it and just be like, well, you know, I guess we're just going to have to learn to deal with the fact that he ain't going anywhere. There's an understanding an implicit understanding, I think, in locker rooms that they know that coaching changes are going to be made if things go bad. And yeah because of that knowledge i don't think it's you know i don't think they're intentionally you know blowing off a coach but there's probably an implicit knowledge in players minds that hey you know if we are really poor for a month or two then the coach might get fired and then we might get a new voice so you know you kind of implicitly know that's coming and maybe that does in a way impact your willingness to listen to a message that you're already starting to lose faith in 
compounded with the fact that the whatever the system is is not working. And like I've said this on a couple of occasions recently because you know system we call it system that's like a cute catchphrase, sure. but for a coach it's religion. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's not. It's the way they do things. I always kind of parallel it with Larry Brown when he coached the Sixers. I need the team to play the right way. Well, his <laughs> right way was his religion, and that's what he, he's not going to change because he's had success everywhere he's gone with his religion and what he believes, the core values of how to attack a team. But you and I talked about this in the press box. The, the team didn't have the right pieces to play the – religion, if you will, to use the term again, that Aline Vigneault was preaching. Yeah, I think that was a big part of it. And the thing with Vigneault's tactics, you know, as you said, we talk about systems as kind of like a catch-all. The hard truth is that, you know, hockey systems at their core aren't that complex. You know, there's only so many four checks you can use. There's only so many neutral zone structures you can use. But the, the distinctions between coaches, it's more about what you emphasize. It's yep. the little things. It's it's the philosophies behind the systems, whether it's aggressive, whether it's passive, whether you're you're chasing down a loose puck in this situation, or if you chase down that loose puck and you don't win it, the coach is going to chew you out. So you know that, okay, that's a play I don't make because I'm not going to be rewarded if I, if I make it. And if I don't make it, I'm going to get killed for it. Like mm -hmm. that's more the distinctions between systems and i think with vino's system it's one of those and, and when i say system again i'm talking about his general philosophy you know you need a lot of things for it to work and you need full buy-in and there's need, risk yeah there's risk you need defensemen mm -hmm. that can make passes under pressure you need speed you need commitment to to a relentless forecheck and a relentless attacking mentality. You need, you know, forwards who have the instincts and the knowledge to know when to blast the zone early to try to catch a team in transition and when it's a bad idea because you're going to get killed if there's a turnover. Yeah. And that's that system, that philosophy, it was working in the second half of 2019-2020. So it's not like it's 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 not like Vino's system is just fundamentally flawed. It yeah, can or outdated. Work. Right. Yeah, it yeah. it can work. It has worked. It just wasn't working anymore for this team. And some of that is personnel. You know, if you don't have strength down the middle, it's a lot harder to play, you know, a a, a good transition game. Some of that was the defense. You know, there's a reason why Chuck Fletcher has mentioned on multiple occasions how much it's hurt them that they haven't had Ryan Ellis, who he views as their best transitional defenseman. You know, it's, it's not a coincidence that they lose Matt Niskanen, who was very good at that. They tried to replace him essentially with Phil Myers, who wasn't as good at that and then regressed in that area. And then they threw in Eric Gustafson, who was more of a stretch pass guy, you know, less of a, you know, make the good, smart, you know, 10 foot pass. He was always looking for the home run. So they didn't have that transition game that they had in the second half of 2019, 2020. And because of that, they didn't have the same speed through the middle of the ice. Their forecheck didn't have as much bite. And it just, the whole system kind of was falling apart. And once that happens, then the players lose faith in it. And then you're, you're doubly screwed because even the parts of it that would have worked if the trust was there aren't working anymore because the players don't believe it's going to work. And once you've lost the players, you're done. And I think that's more or less what happened to Vino. Yeah. And the psychology of it too, players know that if they make a mistake or it doesn't work like that, that two, one, two offensive zone four check, it can be beat with one pass. And when it is, they've got numbers going the other way. And when, Every time it doesn't work, you're pulling it out of the back of your net. Like that's a, you cannot play this game, you know, afraid that you're going to give up a goal or yeah. you are totally screwed. And I think we saw that, like you could see it and you can almost see players thinking. Well, that was definitely in my mind, the case last year. 
you yeah, know, and, and, and part right. of that was part of that was the goaltending. You know, yep. there was definitely a feeling on the part of the players that if we make one mistake, it's going to end up in the back of their net. That said, not absolving the players, because I think part of the reason why the goaltending fell apart is because the players were a mess structurally the first two months of the year. And that put too much pressure on the goaltending. So, like, it's all interconnected, you know, goaltending, skaters, forwards, defensemen, systems, you know, it's all kind of you know, a, a Jenga tower. And if you pull off enough bricks, the whole thing is going to fall apart. And and that's more or less in my mind, what happened in Philly. It just, there was too much damage done last season, too much trust lost. And then when the losses started piling up this year, it all just came apart. Yeah. And, you know, are you surprised that the goaltending, it, well, we're going to refer to Carter Hart because he was the only <laughs> goaltender that was here last year. Are you surprised it rebounded the way it did this year? I mean, he's had a couple outings that were like, you know, the Vancouver game to start the year, obviously, the Tampa game, they were all over him, and he got pulled with 11 minutes left in the second. But for the most part, he, he's been very good. And his core principles of goaltending, even though the environment hasn't been real good at times this year, he's been really sharp. And the way he's rebounded from a mental standpoint, I think, is incredibly impressive. Yeah, I'll be totally honest with you. I'm not surprised, but that's I'm not surprised because of how highly I view Carter Hart. Yeah. You know, I really viewed last season as kind of a perfect storm aberration where everything went bad at the same time. You know, you're talking about technique, you're talking about, you know, mental state, you're talking about the unique nature of of living in isolation in a pandemic. You're talking about the brutal schedule, which didn't give him a chance to reset. I just thought last season was, you know, a year that probably in normal circumstances would have just been a whatever down season for Carter Hart you know maybe he finishes with like a 905 save percentage and we're like yeah Carter Hart needs to be a bit better next year instead yep. the circumstances turned that into a disaster and I never thought he was going to replicate that and I believe that over the summer he was going to you know go home he was going to work on his craft he was going to get his head right and he was going to come back the same goalie that the Flyers fans saw you know in 2019-2020 and in the bubble against uh against Montreal and, and New York and that's really the the goalie we've seen in fact at times I think he's looked even better you know I, I think yeah. that you know you know yeah setting aside those couple rough games and I'm not, I'm going to kind of give him a pass for that Tampa game because you know that was a team that was waiting on its coach to get fired so yeah. I'm, you know, that, that was a unique set of circumstances. Um, to, to me, like Hart at times has looked like he's taken a further step, not just from last year, which was easy to do. Um, well, maybe not easy, but it wasn't going to be hard to be better than he was last year, but he looks to me at times even better than he looked, you know, in his breakout season in 2019, 2020. And in that playoff run, he looks more confident handling the puck. Um, his reads look better. He just seems like he's, even more controlled than he was in the past. And I'm far from a goalie expert, but you know, to me, Hart has, you know, obviously been very, very good, but it seems like not only has he, you know, arrested the potential slide that could have started with last season, but he's actually improving on his foundational game, you know, beyond just getting back to where he was before. Yeah. I, I remember the game against Carolina that they won two to one. I thought it was, I, I went back and watched every save of that game. He was spectacular in that game. That's that glove save he had on Aho in the third, like the the snap and like the attitude, like you could feel his confidence. You can see it the way he moves and the way he's making saves and his explosive. I think he's stronger down low. I think I, I think he looks like a better goalie overall too because I think he I think he went back to some of his core principles this offseason. I know that Kim. Dillaball, the Flyers goalie coach, went up to Edmonton this summer to work out with him and Dustin Schwartz, who was his goalie coach back home. 
and they really kind of attack some of the the core philosophies of his game. And it, it's not so much like trying to add things and change Carter, but let's accentuate the great element, play reading, positioning, efficiency. I think we're seeing all that this year, and that's a huge element. Uh, you know, Charlie, when they consider a next coach, whether it's Mike Yo, whether it's somebody from the outside, whether it's Rick Tockett or John Tortorella or – David Quinn or Jim Montgomery, who somebody else, maybe even maybe even Travis Green, who knows? Uh, they have to consider the element of the goaltender and not putting him in a position to get damaged again. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you don't, you certainly don't want to have Carter Hart or any goalie really having to deal with what what they dealt with last season, particularly over the first stretch when yeah. structurally the Flyers were a total disaster. Um, some of that's personnel too. You know, the, that's on the GM to make sure that the defense is is better. And I'm not just talking about defensemen. I'm talking about team defense. I'm talking about, you know, having guys who, you know, will be committed to two-way play and will be committed to going back and helping your goalie and not, you know, leaving them hung out to dry. So there's that. The coaching question is fascinating to me because, you know, to me, you mentioned that they absolutely have to take into account, you know, protecting your goalie and not leaving, you know, someone like Carter Hart out to make 40 saves a night, 45 saves a night just to protect his team. I think a lot of this coaching decision has to really revolve around what they're going to be doing, like what their plan is as an organization. Totally you know, agree. Like, like for example, you know, they're John Tortorella's name obviously has been thrown out. You know, he's a, he's a big name coach. He succeeded in the past. You know, John Tortorella is not the kind of coach that you hire if, if the Flyers if you're going youth movement, you don't. Yeah, go if you're there. going youth movement, you don't do. If yeah. you're going rebuild, you don't do that. Like no, he's not a developer. It, yeah, so it doesn't make much sense to me to go out and hire a John Tortorella unless you've does you fully committed to the idea of we are still a win now team. You know, the yeah. first two months of this year was a fluke, whatever. But I think like there's there hard questions are going to need to have to be asked if the Flyers miss the playoffs again because then you're in a situation where three out of the last four seasons have been disastrous for this yeah. team. I mean, you, you had the 2018, 2019 season where Hextall and Hextall were fired. You had the 2019, 2020 season, which was objectively good. You had last season, which was a disaster. And then you have this season, which at least to this point has been a disaster. And yeah. teams that have three out of four seasons that are disastrous probably shouldn't be trying to win now. So the, the Flyers really, in the, in terms of what their decision is with, their, with regards to their next coach, they need to take a good hard look in the mirror and figure out what they are. And that has to guide who their next coach is. Because, like, I would be fine with hiring, like, a Rick Tockett if it's if you're going to do a youth movement. Like, I think he'd be, he'd be fine for that. I think he's, he's a smart hockey mind who connects well with his players, and that works. But, like... If you're trying to win now, he's a risk because you don't, you really don't know if he's a championship caliber coach. You hope yeah. he is. You hope you're getting a championship caliber coach. But the fact is, he hasn't done it before. So you don't know. Whereas if you hire a John Tortorella, you know he's a championship caliber coach, but you better be sure that you're giving him a championship caliber team. Yeah. Cause he's a guy that's going to get everything out of what he has. But, uh, you know, the interest, I, I think that I totally agree with you that they have to figure out. You know, you don't have to figure it out right now. No, like, no, not right now. Like fans want to rush, right? We, we live in this microwave society where we pop a thing in the microwave and in 60 seconds, it's ready to eat. Sometimes it doesn't taste so good when you do that, though. So like this notion of, you know, before, even before AV was fired, they need to do something now. No, you don't need to do something now. You need to, you need to ask the right questions, be honest in your assessment and internal assessment and make the right decisions, not the quick decisions. So they have time to figure that out. But let, let's talk about the notion of getting back into it this year. The three straight wins, 
Uh, Montreal tonight, Ottawa Saturday. That could put them in a much better position. They're not that far out of it. Detroit is actually a wild card team right now. And they have games in hand on them. A couple teams to jump. Boston's one of them. New Jersey, or Columbus rather, another. But, you know, with, what is it, 57 games left on this schedule, there's a lot of runway here. Top three spots in the Metro, I think the math is too hard there. But wild card's not out of the equation. But they got to get their game in order to really do it and get consistent and get guys back healthy. Yeah, you know, there is a path. Like, there is a path to getting back in this. Obviously, it's centered around winning a lot of games. That That's yep. that's the essential part. But, you know, as we talked about, the goaltending has been good. Good to great. I mean, Martin Jones has been perfectly fine as a backup, and Carter Hart has been very good as the, the lead guy. So you have that foundation there. If you can fix the structural play, you know, they cannot be what they were at the end of that that 10 game losing streak. I mean, they were, you know, if you're looking at, at underlying numbers, I mean, they were collecting about 44% of the shot attempts of five on five and about 45% of the expected goals. And like, I don't care how good your goaltending is, that's not going to cut. It. Like, no one can survive that degree of no. territorial disadvantage. Now, if you can get that up to 51, 52% with the good goaltending and have the power play chip in with some goals here and there, then then you have something. And then it's just a matter of, you know, can you get guys like Ryan Ellis back, you know, can Kevin Hayes get back to, you know, reasonably close to what he was before the two surgeries this season. Um, can Wade Allison come up and provide the kind of, you know, physical spark that he, that he looked like he was going to be able to provide all year before he unfortunately had the high ankle sprain. You know, you have a path with continued good goaltending with better structural play driven by the coaching change and by guys getting back from injury, you have a pathway to having a very strong second half. Now you have to go out there and do it. And that's going to be on the players and the coaching staff and the goaltending to continue their strong play and whatnot. But like, it's not out of the realm of possibility. There is a plausible path to it. It's just, that doesn't make it any easier. They, they yeah. still dug themselves a really deep hole and it's not going to be easy to win, you know, 65% of their games the rest of the way. Yeah, and there and there's going to be guys that aren't injured that have to get their game back. Sean Couturier is a guy. I think he was dealing with something because he just didn't look like himself. I'm just, in the last couple of games, I've seen you know a little a lot more controlling the, the 200 by 85 from Couturier than we did prior. But like guys like Ivan Provorov's got to get his game back. Let's talk about Provorov because Charlie, there's there's points in games where some of his decision making has been really poor I, I look at the McCarr goal and I go why did he go right when McCarr, he had coverage on that side and he gave up the entire left side McCarr's right on that rush opportunity there's been decision making there's confidence issues he's got to get his game back or I, I don't care if you have Ryan Ellis back or not they got to be better yeah yeah he's been he's been rough especially over the last month or so um yeah. kind of in in tandem with you know as the team started to to fall apart um Provy's interesting because you know, my view of him is that he's obvious. It's very clear he's at his best when he's with a stable, reliable partner, but not just a stable, reliable partner, but a guy who can kind of do it all. And like, I have the utmost respect for Justin Braun and what he brings to the table. But the fact of the matter is, is that ideally he's a third pair NHL defenseman at this stage of his career. He's yeah. not a top pair guy and they're just kind of stuck. They have to use him like that. And I think for a while, cause I thought Proveroff, he didn't score much in the beginning of the year, but I thought he was playing well. I thought he was playing confident. I thought he was making good passes. And I really liked the developing chemistry between him and Ellis and then when Ellis went down I thought he kind of carried that over for a few more weeks you know, even without Ellis I thought the you know Provorov was driving the Braun Provorov pairing as he should considering yeah. he's the more talented player and he was still looking good 
and then his game started so you know bad habits started to creep in the the problems with with puck handling started to return that, that were all over the place last year and the decision making without the puck i think is truthfully my one of my biggest concerns about him like i can't tell you how many times over the last month I've seen like a loose puck in the neutral zone where it's one of those plays where, you know, Provorov, it's a 50-50 play where Provorov can either skate forward and, and trust that he's going to win the race of that puck, get the puck and send the Flyers back up ice or back off and let the other guy get it and just give him easy entry into the zone. And every single time he's backing off, that tells me a guy has, doesn't have confidence, that he lacks confidence uh -huh. both in his teammates and in himself. And he needs to get that back. If he doesn't get that back, you know, the Flyers are going to have a glaring hole on that top pair. And like, I think the Sanheim wrist line in second pair has been fine. And maybe if you get Ryan Ellis back, that will give Proveroff his confidence back because he'll just have a better partner next to him. But ideally you don't have to wait for that because truthfully, like, look, the Flyers have expressed confidence that Ryan Ellis is going to be back this year. They believe he'll be back. But given the way his season's gone, I think it's completely fair to take an I'll believe it when I see it type of route in terms of understanding Ryan Ellis's chances of coming back and being an impact player for this team this year. So you can't pin your hopes on, well, Ellis will fix Provorov. No, Provorov has to fix himself. And then if he gets Ellis back, that's just an added bonus. Yeah. Well, Provorov at this point shouldn't be so partner reliant. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I just, it's, you know, Niskanen, he was, it was a great tandem. With Ellis, the four games they played, it was a good tandem. But again, I totally agree with you that, you know, putting your your hopes on the season in the Ryan Ellis coming back and staying available for the rest of the season is a very tenuous basket to put your eggs in. <laughs> you know what I mean? Exactly. So, uh, let's talk about Giroux because uh, I, he's a player, Charlie, that uh, tries to drag his team to victory as much as he can. He's been their most consistent player. He hasn't been perfect. Nobody has for this team this year. Uh, but are you surprised as he's knocking on the door here at 34 that he's still, I mean, the other night against the devils and okay, it was the devils. I don't care, but he made some passes in that game that I'm going, there is no erosion in his playmaking ability at all at 33 years of age. No. And, you know, those are the types of things, you know, vision, passing ability that yeah, probably, yeah, like they probably aren't going to be affected by aging the way that skating, the way that, you know, mm -hmm. you know, physical ability is going to be. I mean, he still thinks the game and he's, you know, look, he'll be he'll be 60 year old, 60 years old playing in an alumni game and he'll still be making those passes because yep. that's just Claude Drew. Like you don't lose that. Um, but does it surprise me that he's been able to adapt his game to, you know, his physical limitations that come when you're in your mid thirties? Yeah. It surprised me that he's been able to do it this well. Yeah. You know, he, he's turned himself from, you know, what he was in his early to mid twenties, which was pretty much an all offense guy. And you could do it because he was so talented and could pretty much do whatever he wanted and could just control the game by always having the puck in the offensive zone. And I think over the last few years, he's kind of come to the conclusion, in addition to the fact that he's played more wing, but he's playing center now and he's still looking good. I think he's just kind of came to the conclusion that he's got to pick his spots a little bit more. He's got to mm -hmm. play a little smarter, not necessarily play a conservative game, but he's just got to be, you know, he can't take the same risks he took in the past. And in a sense, it's helping him, you know, continue to put up kind of similar numbers, really aside from the power play, kind of similar numbers, because I think 
because he's a more controlled player and because the hockey IQ is still there, the Flyers just have the puck a lot when he's on the ice, regardless yeah. of who he's with. And because of that, you know, you're you're still a great passer. You're still a great playmaker. You're going to have even more opportunities to score because you're not playing the same, like, you know, exciting trade chances kind of game that he could play when he was 23, 24. I give him a lot of credit for, you know, kind of looking in the mirror, having an understanding of what his newfound strengths and weaknesses, well, his newfound, his new weaknesses are, and adapting his play to make it so those weaknesses don't stop him from being a high-end player. Because I still believe he is absolutely a high-end player in this league. And and that's credit to, to his his ability, his humility, and his ability to understand, you know, this is what I can still do. This is what I can't still do. Let me play to those strengths and make sure that I stay very good because I'm taking advantage when I'm still really, really good at it. Yeah, it, it is amazing. You're right. And he's a guy that the compete level, too, is just something that I think a lot of people don't really see with him that is there. I mean, he's a guy that, I mean, if you played ping pong with him, he would want to assassinate you. <laughs> That's just the way he is. It's the way he's wired. Um, let, let me ask you about what he accomplished in regards to power play points, because he's the organization's all-time leader now in power play points. Uh, he since 2010 2011 season he's got the most power play points in the nhl and let's face it charlie he's not feeding a guy named ovechkin he's not handing it off to a line a he's not you know he hasn't had a pure scorer with him on these power plays and frankly the flyers power play for the most part is at best been kind of mid mid nhl level for a lot of his career but yet he's got this huge number of points. I mean, can you put that into perspective where kind of he stands as a power play player? I mean, can you imagine if he had a line A or somebody like that, a trigger man? Yeah, I mean, look what he did for uh, for guys like Scott Hartnell and Braden Shen, you know, yeah. as as those shooters. And I, look, I'm not taking anything away from those guys, but you know, they're not Patrick Line types. No. They're not traditional snipers. And he was just feeding them perfect passes and letting them blast away and score 30 goals a year. Wayne so Simmons. Yeah, Wayne. Yeah, Wayne Simmons. I mean, net I'll give Wayne. Wayne Simmons was a fantastic net front guy, and he would have yep. been a fantastic net front guy regardless of where he played. So, but yeah, I mean, having somebody like Drew to feed him down low certainly didn't hurt. Certainly yep. helped his numbers. I can tell you that. The power play. I mean, especially you know, prime age Drew. The power play was just the perfect you know showcase for his talent. You know, for yeah. his vision, for his IQ, for his way to you know kind of see three steps ahead of the play. You know, yeah. he could he could figure out what would where the puck was going to end up, you know, three players before he was going to touch the puck. He just knew he has that innate ability. And when you're surrounded with guys who are also good playmakers, you know, like he was with guys like Voracek and, you know, obviously, Ghost. yeah, Ghost was, you know, a dynamic power play player for quite a while. Simmons opened things up by being just an incredible net front guy, opens things up for everybody because you got to have somebody on him at all times. So the power play, you know, it's funny you talk about the power play, about it being mediocre for a while. You know, obviously it was really good in the beginning. Yeah, of Jeru's time. And then there was like a three year stretch where it was middle of the road league wise. But if you looked at it, the top unit was one of the best units in hockey. It was just that the second unit never scored. Yeah. So it kind of dragged it, down. it dragged down the efficiency of the team. But if you looked at it, like the Flyers' top unit was as good as any top unit in hockey. Yeah. Then after the Tarion hire, really it was the year before. It was the final year of uh, of Knobloch when the power play really started to fall off from a top unit standpoint. And I don't think they've really figured it out since. Now, you know whether they can find a coach, whether it's you know Daryl Williams running the power play now, whether they go outside at some point, whether they can find a coach who's going to unlock that, I don't know. But 
I would say that, you know, Drew's units, power play units were elite for most of the 2010s. I mean, because he, yeah. he was just that good of a distributor, that good of a quarterback. And he's so patient on it too. Like the game slows down for him. You're right. He's like playing, he's playing chess when everybody else is playing checkers. Yeah. He's like a grandmaster chess, chess champion. Uh, like, but Bobby Fisher. <laughs> <laughs> Look at me pulling that one out. Or Kasparov. There you the, go. The Russian guy. Yeah. Um, yeah. I love chess, by the way. Um, l- let me ask you about Rasmus Ristolainen. Cause obviously that was a very polarizing acquisition this summer. Uh, you know what Chuck gave up, including that number one pick and Robert Haig and everything else. And he comes in in a second pairing role to play alongside Travis Sanheim. There's been some real big kind of ugly hiccups. Like I look back at that, that Pittsburgh game in particular, and the first goal that they scored like 17 seconds in, I'm going, where is he at? Where, where did he go? And there's those moments, but there's those other moments of, you know, physicality. And we're starting to see a little bit of the playmaking abilities that he has as well. The two on one breakup he had at the end of the first period against the devils. Um, he's making some plays. He's gaining confidence. What have you seen it from him, both from your eye test and the analytics? Yeah, I think uh, you know, I think the big thing with with, with Russell Lyon this year is it's kind of a you know it took time. The beginning of the year, I thought he was really rough. It was it was clearly an adjustment. He was learning a new team, learning a new partner, learning new systems, um, and then around maybe like the early part of November, it really seemed to click for him. And he rattled off a bunch of really good games in a row. Then the whole team kind of fell apart. Um, so it was hard to be like, well, he's playing great. Like, I think he was playing okay. Um, but the whole team was playing poorly. So it was kind of like he was playing okay relative to the fact that the rest of the team was a, a total dumpster fire. And yeah, he had a, a really good game against the Devils. I thought, I thought he was, you know, one of the, one of the best players on the Flyers in that game. I think he's been fine. You know, I think on the whole, you know, right. His, his role essentially, you know, obviously with Ryan Ellis, it's gotten pushed up a little bit because Ellis is out, but his role is essentially to be a number four. You know, he's the number four on the depth chart, ideally. And I think he's performed like a solid number four. You know, you look at his analytics, they're not amazing, but they're better than they were in Buffalo. And in truth, that was expected. You know, you should have expected that you drop a guy down in terms of of difficulty of usage. His numbers are going to get better. He's more or less, if you look at his analytics, he's more or less a, you know, a break-even impact guy in terms of his impact at five on five. And really for a number four, that's fine. Like that's, yeah. that's more or less number four. You know, you're expecting the, the top half of your, you know, your defense core to be the drivers, the middle guys to be kind of, you know, they, they provide that stabilizing presence. They don't hurt you and they provide some help from game to game. And then the bottom guys, you're hoping you, you, you in sheltered minutes, they'll be okay. Ristolainen, I think, you know, and, and the thing too is with somebody like him, you have to account. I'm obviously, you know, a pretty analytics oriented guy, but you have to account for the intangible element that he brings. And if someone like him is grading out as break even by analytics, you kind of got to give him another little boost because I do believe that physical presence does provide a cumulative effect to the entire team over the course of a game, both in terms of, you know, making other teams less willing to go into the corners against him and against the team as a whole. And then also just the way it fires up the team on the bench. So, you know, if a guy like Ristolainen is achieving break-even, you know, analytics, and then also providing those things that are a bit tougher to measure because they kind of have an impact across the team as a whole, rather than just on his numbers, then you have to say he's doing a pretty good job. And I think he's done that, you know, again, I, I don't think he's been incredible, but I think he's been good and he's been fine. And in truth, like, you know, I was worried this could be a total disaster and it hasn't been. And, you know, score one for Chuck Fletcher, because in this role, it looks like Ristolainen can, can certainly hold his own. And, 
you know, there weren't a lot of right-handed shots, especially guys with physicality out on the market last year. So yeah. he got one and Ristolain is holding his own and we'll, we'll see if over the second half of the year that continues, but I haven't seen much to, to tell me that like the floor is about to fall out from under him. It yeah. seems like he's got a pretty good handle on what he is and, and what his role is with this team. And it'll be interesting to see where the flyers are because he's on an expiring contract. So is Drew. And if they're in a situation where they're not going to be a playoff team, there's two pieces right there that could be very attractive on expiring deals. A guy like Geruda, like a team like Colorado, or Ristolainen is a guy that can can be play maybe play on a third pair on a team trying to load up and bring that. We know that physical part is big in the playoffs, right? You see these teams all adding that for playoff pushes. Um, they could maybe you could even recoup that first round pick uh, for a guy like Ristolainen, maybe. If he's going to be a third pair, maybe not, but uh, you get something for him. So we'll see if they end up re-signing him or not. Um, last thing, Charlie, um, tonight it's Montreal. Do the Flyers come away with another two points in the standings, presuming they're going to play the game? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, like, I'll give my prediction operating under the assumption that no one gets pulled five minutes into yeah. the game and they don't end up having to play with, you know, nine forwards. Um, yeah, I think they win this game. I think they're playing well. And I think Montreal is just such a mess right now that this is a game where, you know, you should win this game. Ottawa, honestly, is is a game I'd be a little bit more worried about just because they're feeling pretty good about themselves right now. They blasted so, Florida eight to two. Yeah, and they beat Tampa last weekend. So yeah, I mean, they're nothing. I still think the Flyers are better, but you could see Ottawa, you know, provide more of a challenge. I think Montreal is a team that where they're at right now. I mean, if you want to prove you're the Flyers and you want to prove that you're on, you're going the right direction, that that you've moved past the ten game winless streak, you got to win this game. You got to yeah. win this game. And I think they will because I think they're playing well enough. I think the structure's improved. They definitely need to, you know, continue to make strides in that area. But I think it's improved enough to take apart a team like Montreal that is kind of on the ropes right now. Yeah. And they don't have a carry price to save them right now either. Yeah. I, I really liked what Mike Yo said the other night after the New Jersey game. He said, we're going to reiterate with the, the players that the reason why they had this result is because of hard work. So if you start thinking things are fixed, and you're not willing to put in the work it took to get that result, then you're going to be right back where you are. I love that message. Yeah, and that's the message he has to provide because it, it yeah. isn't all the They're not all the way back. You know, there nope. are still issues. There are still mistakes they're making. So they have to. And, I mean, in truth, Mike Yo hasn't even really fully implemented probably all the changes that he wants to implement yet. You know, he's made some tweaks. They're they're definitely you know using shorter passes in the defensive zone. Their breakouts look smoother. There's you know a bit more the the balance between dump-ins and controlled entries. The risk reward, I think, philosophy is a little bit more skewed towards hey, try to make plays rather than just dump it in as your first read all the time. So there have been tweaks made, but I'm sure there's bigger structural changes that Yo wants to make that he hasn't even gotten to yet because they barely practice. So he wants to make sure the team knows that, like, hey. I've made some changes. We're getting some wins. That's great, but we're not done. And I'm not done in terms of putting my stamp on this team and the style of hockey. I want you guys to play. So goes back to what he said after that, uh, you know, that first game he coached was go to work and go to school. And they're still in school. Yeah. I, I look at it, go, there's no way he can implement all the things. It takes at least a month. Yeah. <laughs> it just yeah. does. So we'll see if they get the win tonight. Hey, Charlie, uh, I, you know, I'm a subscriber to The Athletic. I praise it on social media all the time because of the work that you and so many of the writers there do. I think it's just fantastic content. If no, if people are not a subscriber to The Athletic, pony up because it is great content. And there is no website that covers this sport better than The Athletic. 
And this sport, I frankly, it needs good coverage. And the athletic has provided from you and Pierre Lebrun, just so, so many great uh, writers there. And uh, I appreciate you coming on Stick to Hockey Live. And hopefully they get a win tonight. And we can continue to ride this because, you know, when they lose, it tends to be your fault, my fault, <laughs> and everybody that covers the team's fault. But we never seem to get any of the glory. It's never our accomplishment when they do well. Yeah, it'd be, nice, it'd be nice to get a pat on the back when the Flyers win a couple of games. Like, good job for asking those questions that got that team to do well. Yeah, like, <laughs> hey, they, they won three straight. Good job, Jason. <laughs> not, dude, what the hell would you do? It's all your fault. You know, they just blame me. I, I got the blame on the radio for years. I'm like, what the hell's going on here? What? because you were the only person on the radio that was talking hockey. You were the only person they could point to. <laughs> That's You make a valid point. Maybe the most valid point of this entire interview. <laughs> Charlie, thanks for doing this, man. Be well, all right? Have a good holiday. All right. Take care. Thanks, Jason. There he is. Charlie O'Connor joining us on this episode of Stick to Hockey Live presented by Parks, uh, the Parks Sportsbook, and it's just great stuff. And make sure you go to Parks, download the app, and uh, get on Parks. I'm on there right now because I'm looking at this game tonight. So as so you can see, this is the, there's a little bit of a glare. Let me turn my light. Well, that turns it up. So maybe you can see it there. Parks. So easy to use. And I'm on the Flyer Montreal game tonight. So let me give you a couple plays here to put it in on the Park Sportsbook app where you get a $500 risk-free bet to start. Let's start with game combos. Match the winner and total goals in the game. So you can go Flyers and over six at plus 220. I will take it. Flyers are filling it up lately. Flyers and under six is plus 200. I'll take the 220 at over six. Now, you know, the one, the other one I love is goal score, player goals, first to score, all of that stuff. How about Cam Atkinson had a hat trick in last game? He's a streaky scorer, plus 1150 for the, to score the first goal in the game or plus 188 to score. I'll punch a ticket there. I'm going to punch a ticket at plus 200 for Travis Konechny to get a goal. And you, let's go with a long shot here, too, to score a goal. You want to maybe go like a, a Zach McEwen at plus 440? That's not bad. I would consider that. It's a long shot. It's just a, a little light play to put it on there. Um, I'm not going to give you any goal scorers for the uh, Habitant. Um, shots on goal. We could go with total shots on goal in the game over 62 and a half. It's minus 125. Not bad. Um, and period one, the, the first period for the Flyers has been their best period of the season. If you want to go period one for the Flyers on the money line, it's minus 152. See, Vegas knows. I, I think I would probably stay away from it because I don't like the – it's not a great payout. But some stuff you can put on the game tonight. So make sure you download the app, the Parks app. It's simply fantastic. New customers, you get that $500 risk-free bet uh, just for signing up. And you can go to parkscasino.com slash PA. Everything's laid out there for you as well. And make sure you follow Parks on Twitter, at Parks Sportsbook. Uh, check them out on Instagram. They provide great content there as well um, on YouTube and also Facebook. So tons to go with here. I've got some questions here on the stream. John says, any futures I like right now? Uh, I can look at some of the futures. Um, I know that. Let me look at some of the NHL futures here. Uh, futures. All right. Let's see if we can find a future for you here. Colorado Avalanche to win the cup at plus 550. See, I, I like that play because Colorado also has cap space, John. So they can add Florida at plus 800, 
I just don't believe that that team's going to win it. Vegas is at plus 750, but I'm I'm not a believer there. To win the Western Conference, Colorado also at plus two and a quarter. Some things that you have to lose to get better. Um, let me see if there's any. Let's let's go with some of the trophies. So the Art Ross winner, that's not even worth it. There's too much there. The Maurice Richard, Rocket Richard trophy. You can grab Ovechkin at plus 350 to lead the league in goals. The Calder, eh, Zegers is not bad there at plus 200. Um, the Norris McCarr is the favorite at plus 175 or Adam Fox. I probably wouldn't do that. The Vesna right now, it is Shesterkin at plus 400. Can that sustain? I, I like Shesterkin a little bit as a light bet, as a futures bet to win the to win the Vesna. So, yeah, I would go with that. And John says, I locked in Zegers couple weeks ago for the Colorado. I hope you got good odds on the park sports book. So um, I, I look, he made that dynamic play on the Sonny Milano goal to kind of Michigan and o- over the net, but um, yeah, that's not a bad play. Good on you, John, for, for putting that one in. Um, we're going to have another new episode for you. Again, stick to hockey live is every Monday and every Thursday at one o'clock. We do it live here. Then it's also available on demand on iTunes. It's going to be on Google this week. I know this is actually is already on Google. The OG's podcast is not there yet, uh, but it will be by the end of this week. Spotify, all those different places. Leave us a rating and review. That'll help people find this podcast and get it out there. It's back. It's consistent. The Stick to Hockey podcast took a nice long pause. Still doing Flyers daily, but we're also going to do this twice a week and have these great conversations with people like Charlie Check out the first three episodes. We had Adam Kimmelman on episode number one of what we're calling this season two of Stick to Hockey Live. On episode two, we had Brian Boucher, and I love talking to Boucher. Everybody knows that. And then on Monday's episode, go back and check this out, too. We talked to Kevin Woodley from InGoalMag.com, and Kevin's the, the goalie whisperer for Sportsnet in Canada, and he just provides great information and insight on the position of goaltending and and, and by proxy, the the – ability to score goals in the NHL. So it'll give you a lot of info there as well. And Kevin will be joining us from time to time. And we'll have another brand new episode coming up on Monday for you at one o'clock. And it's presented by Parks and everybody should go get the Park Sportsbook app immediately because it's well worth it. And uh, you'll have some fun doing the live play-by-play betting and in-game betting as well. And also got to tell people about Wildfire Podcasting because they're our podcast host and uh, they got a great studio just outside of Philadelphia in Clementon, New Jersey. If you're thinking about a career in sports broadcasting, you want to start a podcast. If you're thinking about for your company doing a podcast, it's a great way to market your business. Become known as an expert in your field by putting out podcasts, thousands of listeners. It's a great way to interact with your audience and your customers and your clients. Go to wildfirepodcast.com or email Jim, jim at wfgnj.com. Tell him I sent you and your first show is free. Again, go to wildfirepodcast.com. They know what they're doing. They do it great. And they host this podcast. They host the Ajis podcast. And all of those are presented by the Park Sportsbook. So that'll put a wrap on this episode. Thanks to Charlie O'Connor for joining us. Thanks for everybody for watching and for listening. We'll have a brand new episode for you coming up on Monday. Have a great couple of days. Enjoy your hockey. And we'll talk to you on the next episode of the Stick to Hockey Live podcast. Thanks, everybody. I dream about how it's going to end.